Welcome, everybody. Like Pastor Hudson said, my name's Jason. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet and you're new, I would love to do that. I'll be hanging out right down here after uh, this service. So for the last several months, we've been opening up this ancient text, first book in the Bible, Genesis. As the name implies, it's all about beginnings, the genesis of things. And now we come to chapters 44 and 45. So we're going to wrap it up, guys, in the next couple of weeks. But I just want to say for now that these chapters actually hold the crescendo moment between this man, Joseph, whom we've been looking at for the last several weeks, and his brothers. By way of reminder, it's been 20 years since his brothers sold him into slavery. Well, originally, they beat him. Stripped him down. He was dad's favorite. Remember, he had this special robe that I believe it signified a place of prominence in the family. But being the second youngest, his older brothers weren't having it. They're looking at him going, no way. We don't like that. Take that thing off. But being 17 years old and rather naive, he perpetuates their jealousy. In fact, at one point, he has this dream. It's a God-given dream. But he lacks some self-awareness. Like many people today, he actually shares this dream with his brothers. And in the dream, God reveals that they're all going to be bowing down to him. Now, I've told you before, I'm the youngest of five by a lot. If I went to my family members, especially my older brothers, and I said, hey, guys, I had this dream where you all bow down to me. (laughs) I can assure you that wouldn't land well. And it doesn't land well with Joseph's older brothers. They stripped him down, treat him violently. We read about how the word used to describe what they did to him was actually, it's the same word used to skin an animal. It's some serious mistreatment at the hands of his own family. They decide to profit off of him, sell him as a slave into Egypt. They have no idea how the hand of God will be upon his life. They have no idea. They can't even dream What will happen to him? As a slave, he's in the house of this influential man named Potiphar, where he's falsely accused of sexual harassment against the man's wife. The guy's innocent, but yet he gets this accusation. He's thrown into a prison where he remains for some time, and it appears by all intents and purposes that he's just absolutely forgotten. He's done everything right. Remember how we talked about this? What happens when you do everything right, and yet it's like everything turns against you? But he's super faithful to God. He's not going to abandon what he believes just because things get difficult. And, isn't, and that's how it is in life, right? Because it's like what you really believe about God, the ultimate test of that comes when bad things happen to you. That's when your theology, so to speak, becomes refined. Because if God exists just to make your life easy, every single one of us is going to be let down because life has a way of taking things away from you. Then what? What if God had larger purposes to human suffering and pain? That is actually the overarching message of Joseph's life. You're going to see that in our text. So here's where we left things off. There's a severe famine that hits the land. God, through a dream, has made Joseph aware of it, so he prepares in advance. This is what elevates him to the position of number two in the Egyptian empire. He becomes the prime minister. He's the one overseeing all the food supply. So for seven years, there's abundance. He stores up grain. For the seven years where there is famine. So all of Egypt has to go through Joseph to get fed, including the famine is so severe that the surrounding areas, the land of Canaan, where his brothers live, Their stomachs are also growling, so they have to make a trek to see Joseph. They have no idea that it's their little brother 
that has ascended to such power. So they appear before him. Again, Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He has the appearance of Egyptian. He's married an Egyptian wife. He's speaking Egyptian. He's got the, the, all, everything that goes with being in the position of prime minister. They, they would never assume that it's him. And they get the food from him, but he's putting them to the test because he wants to see if they, if, have they changed in the last, it's been 20 years. Have they changed in the last 20 years? Are they still the same guys that rejected him? Because when they come to him, there's one brother that's missing. One brother doesn't travel with them, and that's the youngest brother, Benjamin. And so Joseph's like, well, now wait a minute. In his mind, he's thinking, did you guys do to him what you did to me? Like, do you have this thing against little brothers? Where's Benjamin? So he asks them under this cloak of being an Egyptian. He's like, tell me about your family. They say, well, there's 11 of us. Our youngest is at home. Joseph says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. I want to know that he's still alive. So if you come back here, you don't come back unless you bring him to me. They run out of food in Canaan. They have to go back. Who do they see again? They're going to see Joseph. Joseph has one last test. Three times, Joseph will weep uncontrollably. Gentlemen, sometimes it takes a lot for a man to cry. This dude cries three times around his family. And this third time will be the loudest. And this third time will be the most significant because it will be a 20-year reconciliation come to fruition. How does that happen? Well, let's read about it. So here's this last test. The men are dining, they're eating Joseph's food. Again, not knowing that who Joseph is, but as they come, they get this grain, they're eating Joseph's food. The text tells us that they drank till they were merry. The word literally means they drank till they were made happy. So they're buzzed, they're buzzed. They're having a great night. They're leaving the next morning with all this food. And then Joseph pulls his servant aside and he says, I have a plan. Chapter 44, verse one. Then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. And put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Give him the food, but give him back the money. This is exactly what he did on their first trip. They were shocked when they found the money, and they're like, he's going to kill us. He's going to think that we stole from him. we got to get this money back to him. But Joseph planted the money back. Again, this was a test to see where their hearts were at. And put, look at this, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of little Benji. Give it to Benji, the youngest. See, at this point, they have brought Benjamin back. They have proven that Benjamin is still alive. Also, his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph had told them. So this is an, the ultimate setup. You can, maybe you can kind of see where this is going. This cup would be a really special cup that only the prime minister would own. It would be monogrammed, you know, his personal property. Silver was expensive let alone the fact that it belonged to the number two guy in the most powerful kingdom that the world knows at this time. Verse three, as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They have no idea what's happened. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, go after them. Go catch up to them. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? By the way, if you're a thinking person, you should be asking this question. Theologians refer to the study 
of, well, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever ask that question? I hope you do. That's a super fair and honest question. You better be asking that question. If you're not, you're not thinking. The Bible says, come let us reason together. Theologians call it theodicy. Why do bad things happen to innocent people? That's a very good question. Joseph is going to answer this question in a few chapters, but he's going to do so. Watch this now. With all that he has learned about God through the highs and lows of his life, and the thing he's learned about God is that God is sovereign through it all. And I think of all God's attributes, perhaps his sovereignty is the most important in helping you calm down. Of all God's attributes, it is his sovereignty that is the one that comforts Christians most in their moments of anxiety. It's the idea that there are no accidents, there are no mistakes. But the question remains, so if God is omnipotent, that means all-powerful, then he could stop the suffering before it happens. And if God is omniscient, meaning that he's all-knowing, then nothing escapes him. He knows what's happening. So why doesn't he stop it? Could it be that God has larger purposes that actually use human pain to advance his greater agenda and for our own personal good. If you can take your suffering up into the purposes of God and find meaning, it completely and totally changes your perspective on things. And that is not an easy, easy thing to do because life is hard. Life is painful. So they're in a really, really bad situation. Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this, referring to this cup that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You're like, wait a minute, Joseph practices divination? This is all a part of keeping up the Egyptian appearances. Nowhere in the text does it say that Joseph practiced divination, but he's keeping up the appearance of being a full-on Egyptian. You have done evil in doing this. So when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. So herein lies the trap, right? So it's like, hey, you guys were the last ones to be with the prime minister in his presence, and you're eating his food, you're drinking his wine. His cup is missing. One of you has it. This is how you repay him for the kindness that he's shown you. Now they're tripping, verse 7. They said to him, what is, why, whoa, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought to you from the land of Canaan. So when Joseph returned their money the first time, he's like, look, we came to you. We gave back the money. They're trying to say, we're honest. We're honest. We'd never steal from you. How then could we steal silver silver or gold from your Lord's house, right? It makes makes sense. And then they make this offer in verse 9. Whichever of your servants is found with this cup shall die. How about that? That's how confident we are that none of us has it. And we also will be my Lord's servants. So he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, you know, and he searched, beginning with the eldest. This is interesting. Ending with who? Benjamin. So Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, all the way down to Benjamin. And they're opening it up, and they're eager to do it. Look, there's nothing in here, right? Okay, you're clear. Okay, you're clear. They get all the way down to Benjamin, and... Got you. Got you. It's the youngest that took it. 
He's the thief. And so you know what that means. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack, and then they tore their clothes. This is a sign of being deeply troubled, and every man loaded his donkey, and they're going back to the city. So the steward plays his little role very, very well. He sets him up, and he takes him down. Now, I said this was a test. This is the ultimate test. Why? Well, understand what's happening here. Joseph, he really wanted to know, when push comes to shove, will they abandon little Benjamin like they abandoned him? In that moment, will the older brother say, Benjamin, hate to be you, buddy. (laughs) See ya. Let's go, guys. Hey, we've done this before, guys. We've been in this situation where we've abandoned little brother before. We can do that again. And then we made made up excuses to our father. You know, remember we took his robe, dipped it in blood, and we said, man, the, the wild animals must have eaten him, dad. And dad fell for it. Guys, we could do it again. This is the ultimate test to see what's inside them. Pretty smart. Will they disown him? Well, it's interesting. Um, as they're, they're horrified, they, they tear their clothes. But apparently, these are not the same men as they were 20 years ago. Um, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Remember when that 17-year-old Joseph had dreams of his brothers bowing down to him? This is what, the third or fourth time? But the language here in the Hebrew says that they literally threw themselves down to the dirt. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? So again, he's acting the part of an Egyptian sorcerer. And Judas said, this is brother number four, what are we going to say? What what are we going to speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. So he's like, you know what? Take us all. We'll all stay and be your servants. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for the rest of you, go back to your father. And therein lies the twist. Because when dad originally sent the guys, he refused to send little Benjamin with them. And the reason why is because the last time he sent the older boys with the younger, Joseph, Joseph didn't come back. Why would he do that again? You guys aren't very good at looking after the little ones. There's no way I'm sending Benjamin with you. And so Judah steps up and he says, Dad, you have my personal guarantee. It's my life for Benjamin. I promise I will bring him back with me. And now they're stuck. This is a really, really difficult position for them to be in, and they actually explain that, how this goes. So Judah speaks up, proves himself to be a leader, and he says, hey, let me explain something to you, Prime Minister. Verse 24, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what you had told us. Don't come back unless you bring our little brother. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we can't go down. If, if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. So they tell it Accurately, verse 27, then your servant, my father, said to us, you know what my wife, uh, that my wife bore me two sons. He's like, this is what dad said. I had two sons by Rachel. Actually, of the 12 boys, they had four different moms, but Joseph and Benjamin had the same mom, Rachel. One left me. In other words, he says, Joseph is dead. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. He believed the lie that they had told him. And I have never seen him since. So if you take this one, if you take little Benji from me and harm happens to him, 
I will go to my grave in sorrow. In other words, he says, my dad's going to die if I don't bring Benjamin back to him. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, dad's going to die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to show. For your servant, Judah himself, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, dad, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. So this is a huge change of heart. What Judah says now is, let's not mistreat and abandon little brother. Judah says, I'll give my life for his. But there's something else going on here. For the first time, Joseph hears the lie that his brothers told to their father about what happened to him. He never knew that they dipped his coat in blood, the blood of an animal, and then took it to dad and said, daddy's been devoured by wild animals. It's like he's, he's in front of his abusers and he's reliving the abuse and he hears the lies that they sold to dad about his death. And at the same time, he actually hears Judah say, I'm not going to let happen to Benjamin what happened to Joseph. My life for his. Let the boy go. My dad will die if he doesn't come home. My life for his. And this ends up melting the heart of Joseph. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. As prime minister, wherever Joseph went, there would be a massive entourage, constantly surrounded. And he says, make everybody leave. Everybody out. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so loud that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, and I believe at this point, he speaks Hebrew. Up until now, he's been using an Egyptian interpreter to communicate. But in this moment, perhaps he speaks Hebrew. And what does he say? I'm Joseph. I'm Joseph. And then he says, how's dad doing? Is my father still alive? And the response of his brothers, <laughs> his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed. That word dismayed literally means stupefied. They were made stupid. They're surrounded by all of this incredible opulence like they've never seen. Joseph is wearing linen so finely woven it's almost transparent. You can hear the cries. And everything just melts away. And they can't believe what's happening. They're rocked. This man whom they know is this 
incredibly powerful individual turns out to be their brother. I love what John Chrysostom wrote. <laughs> he wrote, quote, I am amazed that their souls did not depart their bodies upon hearing their brother speak. And notice what it is that Joseph says. Immediately after saying, what's up, brothers? What does he say? How's dad? Now, this is fascinating. Why does he say this? I'll, I'll tell you why I think he says it. There is a time in every grown man's life when he needs his dad. You see how I said that? There's a time in every grown man's life. I'm not talking about when your sons are little. I'm talking about as they get older. There's a time in every grown man's life when he needs his dad. So dads, do whatever you can to keep the lights on, keep the door unlocked, make it easy for your son to return. Sons, do everything in your power to maintain a healthy relationship with your dad. If you're young, you don't know what you don't know, but you're about to find out. How's dad doing? How's dad? It's like, you wanna get a, a, a room full of grown men crying? Question, tell me about the relationship you have with your dad. How's dad doing? And he misses him, as you're gonna see in a second, he misses him dearly. Now, I want you to notice how many times Joseph acknowledges the hand of God in his life through it all. Because we're coming, coming toward the end of the story here. Now, look at, now this, is, this is cool. Verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. Picture this. And they came near. And they said, I am your brother, Joseph. And here's the proof in this next statement. You guys sold me into slavery. Now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they absolutely know it's their brother. But don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Because you see, this whole thing is on God. God sent me before you to preserve life. Notice how the hand of God is even through his heartache. Rejection, family rejection, imprisonment, falsely accused, to preserve life, and literally to the preservation of life, because thousands of Egyptians would be saved because of Joseph. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. It's going to be really bad. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. This is God's sovereign hand. He acknowledges it. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So this is really interesting. This is actually a nod to God's covenant promise, because there's like great, 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 great grandfather. I think I got that right. Abraham, going back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So when God came on the scene and has this conversation with the patriarch Abraham, he says, you're going to be my guy. You're going to be my guy. And we're going to have this relationship. And what's going to happen is, is you're faithful to me. You're going to be blessed. And then I'm going to make you a blessing to others. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And he says, actually, through you, one is going to come forth that will be a blessing to the entire world. Who's he talking about? Well, if you read the prophet Isaiah, it gives a crazy description of what happens to this guy who comes on the scene and describing death by crucifixion hundreds of years before the Persians invented crucifixion and the Romans perfected it, he describes the death of Jesus. 
And so Joseph says, God had these promises that were made. He's gonna send forth the Messiah, but he's gonna do it through our family line. It's gonna be us, it's gonna be the Israelites, it's gonna be the Hebrews, it's gonna be the Jews. That's what's gonna happen. We're gonna have to be kept alive. And so God put me in this position to keep the family from starving to death. Because you see, God has this greater purpose for mankind. It was not you that sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of a house, ruler over the land of Egypt. Now hurry up, go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. This was good land, Egyptian land, and your children and your children's children, your flocks, your herds, all that you have. There I will provide for you for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. So what happens is this is how the Israelites essentially get into Egypt where they will be for 400 years. You ever wonder how they wound up under Egyptian slavery? Bam, Joseph moves the family there and then they start, they start producing and producing and the Israelites grow and grow. And now, verse 12, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, all that you have seen. Hurry, bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. These two guys share the same mob. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, they actually have a family conversation. I would love to know how that went. Whoa, can you imagine that? Pass the turkey. Hey, remember when, um... <laughs> sorry about that. My bad. What can be said? What can be said is that Joseph's words are actually theological declarations. In other words, what you really believe about God gets put to the test when you get stuff taken away. The hatred, the reject, no pain like family pain, the rejection, the dreams, the caravan bound for Egypt, the false imprisonment, the appearance before Pharaoh, interpretation of dreams, the famine, the, the, the high position. Uh, it's all, all under the sovereign hand of God. And I couldn't see what God was doing in that pit. But let me tell you, I got a clear picture now. You've heard me say before, on this side of eternity, I have a, I have a lot of questions, God. On that side, I think there's gonna be a million and one moments where I'm like, Oh, okay. It's like the tapestry, right? It's like a hand-woven tapestry. You look at the back of it, all you see are these frayed knots, you know, and you're like, what is that? Then you turn it over, it's like, oh, that's awesome. That's beautiful, God, what you were weaving the whole time. And I only saw one little section of it, and I couldn't really make sense of it. But now, I see it. So, pretty cool, right? Ultimately, this is family reconciled. You might need that. Two things bringing about. The brother's confession and sorrow over their mistreatment. In other words, they own up to, their, to the wrong they've done. That's big. Um, and then Joseph's ability to forgive, which was enabled by uh, his understanding of God's providential care. Um, that, they're, they're, that's really profound. There are some wounds that require the kind of grace that comes to you directly from God. Uh, these are really, really deep wounds. And um, you are gonna have a hard time forgiving others if you don't understand all that you've been forgiven of yourself. That might be the, the, the greatest test of whether or not you really understand God's grace toward you. How quickly do you share it with others? Um, that's the beautiful thing about being on this side of the cross 
Jesus is a better Joseph. Jesus is a better Judah. Judah steps up and he's like, my life for his. Well, Jesus steps up and he says, my life for everybody's. Joseph says, hey, God put me here so that I would save many. Jesus says, yeah, God put me here so that I would, I would save everybody. But there's something to the brother's response because what happens with the brothers is they admit that they're wrong, their guilt. And that's when the relationship can be restored. You can still forgive somebody. You release them from that so that you release the bitterness and anger. Even if they don't come to you and ask for forgiveness, you can release them from it. And that has more to do with your own heart healing, but it's going to be really difficult for there to be full reconciliation when the person who has wronged you does not own up to it because it's still just hanging out there. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, look, if you come before God, you have your, you know, you're worshiping God, you've got your, your, your sacrifice there at the altar, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, you know what? I, I have offended a brother. If that thought comes to your mind, then Jesus says, here's what you need to do. Go back and make it right. Leave your offering and go get reconciled. It's Matthew chapter five. It's the greatest sermon ever preached in history, and Jesus drops it. See, it's not about the words that come out of your mouth as much as it is the actions that back up those words because there won't be real reconciliation until you go and you say, words that are hardly ever heard today, how about this? I was wrong. I am sorry. There's great healing in those three words. So it's interesting because, you know, this is the time of year where family gets together and there's a lot of pain and a lot of discomfort around the holidays. You know, it's like people, they say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm getting together with family for like one hour. <laughs> because everything is gaslit. Everybody's divided. Everybody has different thoughts and opinions. And it's like, well, what conversation can we have? Well, the turkey's great this year. So this is, this is a, a really timely message, but, th but there's, a deeper, there's something deeper here going on that I, I really want to make sure we don't miss, and that is this idea that each week you pretty much heard me say, Genesis points forward to who? Jesus. Not loud enough. Jesus. Thank you. Genesis points forward to Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. So where are you at with that? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just to free you from any distraction. Just would ask that you'd be open-minded, open-hearted enough <clears throat> if you would even just acknowledge the fact that there is a God, a creator God, then hopefully you're open to the work that he promised to do through the Messiah, which he promised. And if we're not talking about Jesus being the fulfillment of hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, let me just ask you, who are we talking about? <laughs> who, who, who else is there? There's nobody else. So in the spirit of Joseph's brothers, I would just ask for you to maybe just consider in the depth of your soul, what would it mean for you to adopt that posture where you say, hey, you know what? I've been wrong. I have wronged others. You want to know why the world is so jacked up? Well, to a degree, it's... it's partly because of what we contribute to it. It's our own self-centeredness to a greater or lesser degree. We're all guilty of it. That's the beauty, though, of the message of Jesus is that there is forgiveness for all. And then we become the kind of people that extend forgiveness to others. So if that's where your heart is at and you say, hey, I, I need that, what do I do? You just express it to God. You just say, listen, I know that uh, I know it to be true. 
I'm prone to wander and rebel and to think thoughts that aren't attached to the God who created me. But more to the point, it's a recognition that Jesus is the one who practiced Judah for you, me for him, me for her. The Bible tells us that we're all born into a dysfunctional relationship uh, with God, and Jesus came to right that. Because God is just, he can't turn a blind eye to all the wrong that we've done. The Bible says, very high price, the wages of sin is death. That's both Old and New Testament, pretty clear. But by God's grace, there was a sacrifice for you. All you do is you admit that to God. That's the first step in understanding what it means to be transferred from death to life. It's cool. When Jesus was around, he's, he raised his friend from the dead. And at the same time, he wept, knowing that he was going to die again. But there's rejoicing in knowing that there is an everlasting life. We're not here by accident. This world is too perfectly fine-tuned for me to have enough faith to believe anything else. So God, I pray that you would speak to every heart here, Lord. You know, uh, there's some deep woundedness, loss, that is within every human heart that can only be met by you. God, I pray that you would help us to take it up into your larger purposes, that you use us to be your ambassadors and to minister to people out of our own hurt as that helps us find meaning. Because in the end, it's the story of Joseph. What people intend for evil, God, you take and you use it for good as only you can do. Help us to see that. Give us a special measure of grace and mercy over this coming week. All for your glory, we pray. God's people said, amen. amen.